0: Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst uh, with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. At Cato, we like to say that ideas have consequences. Some ideas, like those which originate in this August building, are of course very good, whilst others not so much. Amongst the latter, I would include uh, a 1917 paper authored by the future Soviet dictator Vladimir Ilyich Lenin entitled, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. In it, Lenin tried to explain why, contra Karl Marx, standard of living of workers in the West seemed to be increasing, and why workers conscripted during the First World War turned on each other rather than against their ruling elites. Colonial exploitation, Lenin asserted, enabled Western capitalists to buy the loyalty of the working classes, all the while people in the colonies suffered. Fast forward to the 1960s, an era of African liberation from the colonial rule. The Soviet Union was growing at a very fast pace and has recently overtaken the United States in the space race. Socialism was in the vogue, and Lenin's 1917 paper provided a theoretical justification for African liberators, many of whom were educated in the USSR, to jettison capitalism along with other vestiges of the European rule. From statism in Kenya to socialism in Zambia to communism in Ethiopia, central planning spread across the African continent. And the consequences were devastating. Between 1975 and 2005, African economies contracted at uh, a 0.16% per annum rate. And it wasn't until the mid-2000s that many African countries returned to the incomes they enjoyed 40 years previously. Socialism may have been a great failure, But capitalism remains a dirty word. It is therefore a great pleasure to introduce to you a book that aims to restore free market capitalism to its rightful place as the only plausible answer to African poverty and underdevelopment. As Jeffrey Herbst and Greg Mills, the authors of Africa, Africa's Third Liberation, As the authors argue, I quote, despite the numerous successes throughout the world and the unprecedented reduction of global poverty, many in Africa still want to reject the main tenets of the conventional, or if you will, capitalist model. The hurt to pride, person, and fortune inflicted by colonialism still lingers across much of the continent. In Africa, there remains, in particular, an aversion to the public embrace of the markets, let alone capitalism, even if that is precisely what some African countries are doing. It doesn't matter, of course, if they call their economic strategy the embrace of the free market or anything else recognizable to the Western mind. What is important is that African states should have a rigorous vision of how to grow, how the proceeds of growth should be employed, and how growth will be used to benefit overwhelmingly the people and not the elite. Our first speaker is Jeffrey Herbst, the co-author of Africa's Third Liberation. He is the 16th president of the Colgate University, and he took office in 2010. He was the former provost and executive vice president for academic affairs, and professor of political science at Miami University. He received his BA from Princeton University in 1983, MA, M. Phil from Yale University in 1985, and PhD in 1987. Herbst has also written extensively on political and international affairs in Africa, an area of inquiry in which he has published two books, States and Power in Africa, which received the Gregory Lubert Prize uh, for the best book in comparative politics in two thousand, and the second book um, which I believe is africa 's third liberation. So with that, help me welcome Jeffrey Herbst.
1: thanks very much, and thank you, uh, Marion and uh, Todd also for uh, coming out today and thank you also to the Cato Institute for hosting. Uh, what is the American launch of Africa's Third Liberation, which was published in August by Penguin in South Africa. I bring you first apologies from my co-author, Greg Mills, who was planning to be here and very much wanted to be here, uh, but got sick uh, while doing fieldwork in Somalia. Uh, some of you may have had that experience uh, in the past and uh, simply was not up to coming here. But uh, he's here in spirit, and... Uh, I know uh, he'd very much like to engage with you. Uh, Greg has also led the launch of the book in several African countries, uh, most recently in uh, Kenya and Malawi. Uh, It's a pleasure to talk to you briefly about the book today and about uh, some of the crucial topics that we tried to examine. I do believe that this is a critical moment for Africa and a critically optimistic moment, uh, where Africans will be making a set of choices which will affect uh, their economies and their political economies for many years to come first as we note in the book uh, this moment it is the africans more than anyone else who are driving the debates and i think that's really important to note because just a few years ago we heard via at the Glen Eagle summit and uh, uh through a variety of rock stars and celebrities that development assistance foreign aid Uh, would be the critical determinant of how Africa would grow, and indeed whether some African countries would grow at all. Uh, Only a few short years later, it's important to note how much that agenda has changed. Uh, In fact, Africa is growing, not because of foreign assistance, and I believe that increasingly, the Africans have finally seized their own development agenda, and we hope to make a contribution uh, to what is legitimately and importantly an African debate. It's also a moment, uh, as was noted, where global poverty is on the decline. And as many have noted, uh, we are seeing uh, the most remarkable decline in world poverty and human history. Uh, most of that decline, it should be said, has not been in Africa, uh, but has been in East Asia because of the remarkable growth rates in that region, largely in China, but also other places. But they have demonstrated to the Africans that a context where sharp reductions in poverty are possible. And we hear increasingly in Africa that if so many other countries have followed a path, albeit different ways, but a path of relatively high growth with poverty reduction, then why can't the countries of sub-Saharan Africa? And finally, as was noted, African countries have rebounded uh, from the worst of their times, at least on a continental per capita average. Uh, African per capita income probably hit a peak between 1976 and 1978, again on a continental average that hides the diversity of of country experiences, uh, but is useful to note. And then there was a long period of decline. And it was not until really 2006 or so uh, that on a continental level, Africa regained uh, the income that it, per capita that it had in 1974 1976. 30-odd uh, years, a record uh, which is very limited. Since then, per capita growth has continued to rise, and the IMF is predicting that The region will grow at about 5% a year for this year and next. And future years, depending on a few assumptions, look relatively robust. Uh, Africa's growth stands in sharp contrast, of course, uh, to the the growth prospects of many developed countries, and is more robust even than some developing regions. It's therefore a wonderful moment to talk about African development prospects, but also a critical one. Because we argue in the book that the choice that the Africans have to face now is whether they will use this relatively buoyant movement to move away from the political economy structures that have developed since colonialism, uh, that feature the enrichment of the elite, uh, regulation and state intervention in many markets, to a set of economies which will, in fact, decrease poverty and critically promote job creation. Thus, we've titled the book Africa's Third Liberation, the first liberation uh, being from the colonialists, the second liberation being from the liberators, and now the third liberation, the prospect of being liberated from the political economies that grew up and ossified from colonialism and through the the first 30, 40, 50 years of Africa's independence. There has been growth, uh, and there's some debate, and it's quite legitimate, over the exact sources of growth. Uh, Certainly, the relatively high commodity prices that we've seen in the last few years, driven by demand, especially from China, but also from other parts of Asia, have affected African economies in a very positive way and bid up the number of buyers in many commodities. We've also seen a significant amount of investment, Chinese uh, across the board, but also Western investment, especially in the hydrocarbon sector, that has driven growth upward. We tend to put a relatively strong emphasis on the effect of commodity prices on Africa's growth, but there are undoubtedly other factors also. African governments have made important reforms uh, in macroeconomic policy in particular over the almost 30 years that economic reform has been on the agenda in many countries. Uh, In the area of exchange rate management, for instance, when once overvalued exchange rates were typical across the continent, there's now much better management of exchange rates. Uh, There's better management of state-owned enterprises and a host of other areas that have no doubt contributed to improvements in governance, even if governance at an absolute level remains uh, pretty poor relative to other regions of the world. There have also been important technological developments, most notably in telecommunications, that have greatly helped African countries, uh, and the remarkable effect that cell phones have had on many countries in terms of allowing them to finally wire in uh, to world economies to empowering individuals should not be underestimated. And finally, uh, conflict in many countries is down, and some significant wars have ended, notably in West Africa, uh, but also in Southern Africa. And this peace, albeit sometimes fragile, and often hard won, has had an important effect on the economic prospects, as some countries associated with battle uh, and with destruction, be Mozambique, Liberia, or like, have now had some years of peace and are beginning to reap the economic rewards. So macroeconomies are growing, uh, and a number of arrows are green and in the upward direction. But there's still a great deal to worry about, even if economic growth has been positive, it's still off of a very low base. And many Africans are absolutely impoverished. uh, And poverty throughout the continent is significant and due to population growth, in some ways, growing. But also, we've seen that the growth to date has not created that many jobs. Africa, of course, is on a demographic curve that's different from other regions of the world. And as other regions see their populations begin to stabilize and the absolute number of young people perhaps even decrease, and of course, in the developed world, absolute populations begin to decrease, Uh, the number of young people in Africa is still increasing and will increase for quite some time. Uh, It's estimated that Africa may have one quarter of the world's youth uh, in the next few years, uh, but two-thirds of them at the current time are unemployed. Uh, we've seen in South Africa, for instance, uh, where unemployment is at least a quarter, could be much higher, uh, that a country has not been able to increase jobs. In Zambia, which is estimated to grow at about 7.7 percent this year, one of the highest growth rates in the country on the back of relatively high commodity prices and investment uh, the percent employed is probably around uh, 5% or so. Uh, The growth rates to date have, perhaps not surprisingly, resulted in a large number of job creation. And it's a challenge because much of the growth is propelled by commodity prices and some increase in commodity volume. And in some commodities, that's very hard to generate jobs in the first instance. You may produce more oil, for instance, but that does not immediately mean you're producing more jobs. So Africans face, and it's a somewhat different challenge than many of the East Asian countries, which featured early industrialization. Africans face the challenge of how to create more jobs, given that much of the economic growth in the next few years, probably in the foreseeable future, will be off commodities. That's a real challenge. It is, however, we believe the critical challenge, because African growth rates will not matter that much. in terms of the consumption and development prospects of individuals unless countries are able to create more jobs. And as we've seen in North Africa, if there are significant numbers of youth who are unemployed, then political stability in what are often very fragile and nascent uh, democratic systems uh, will be challenged. We look at the lessons from other parts of the world uh, in the book uh, and draw specific examples Uh, From Central America, from East Asia, from the Middle East. Of course, the variety of development experiences uh, across the world are many, uh, and each individual African country uh, will have to adjust its policies to its particular circumstances. However, we did draw some general conclusions. Uh, Time after time, we saw that in specific instances, in East Asia, for instance, country efforts to pick winners and to devote a large amount of resources to particular industries, particular products in some cases, oftentimes usually failed and certainly did not gain uh, in the great many, many instances uh, the benefits that was hoped. Uh, in, in addition, we saw that while special economic zones, uh, export areas, and other areas which tried to suspend business as usual Uh, and what were usually heavily regulated states worked somewhat, but they were only zones and enclaves. Uh, What we came back to time after time uh, was that when governments adopted policies, which were hardly surprising, but stressed good governance, uh, the, the limited interference or elimination of interference, especially in labor markets, and the elimination of price distortions, Then there was growth, and oftentimes in surprising areas that that governments did not anticipate. Uh, We found in particular that many, many governments across the world, many of whom had become independent around the same era as African countries, had developed an accommodation with business. One of the striking things about the recent growth in Africa and about African political economies is that while African leaders certainly appreciate the growth to date, they have not reached an accommodation with the private sector, a willingness to acknowledge the importance of the private sector in the growth of their countries, and in many cases, still view the private sector with a great deal of suspicion. And indeed, one of the interesting questions about the relatively buoyant moment in African political economy is if leaders will use this moment to increase the pace of reform, promote states that work even better than before, Or whether some of the bad old practices of the past in terms of elites trying to capture resource rents and increase corruption will reappear simply because some of the immediate pressure is off we saw in other countries in the world that had reached an accommodation with business not that they were always in the pocket of business But there was a lack of animosity towards the private sector, which gave business leaders the confidence to invest beyond the immediate policies of the present-day government, which could, of course, change. And one of the things we argue in the book is that the African governments will have to come to an accommodation of businesses which have traditionally been seen as being dominated by foreigners or by out-groups such as whites, Lebanese, Asians, or by particular ethnic groups, because the current growth will not last and certainly will not lead to increases in jobs and prosperity unless investors feel confident to invest, especially beyond the immediate commodity sector. We found also that investments in education paid off immensely in countries around the world and that one of the great failures of Africa over the last generation has been the failure to create education systems which allow workers to compete on the international market. Uh, Very few, if any, companies these days want to employ low-wage people who are illiterate. That's not the way companies work. They want to employ workers who have been educated, who can be Uh, productive in the context of modern operations, and therefore Africa does not get yet the investment spillover in textiles and other areas that would be possible as wage rates continue to rise in China and elsewhere. We also believe, as I said at the beginning, that a growth ideology has to take hold in many African countries. We saw all kinds of different rhetoric and countries across the world, but that leaders in many cases had been able to stress to their populations the absolute importance with a laser-like focus on development, on growth. Not just in order to disrupt some of the elites and others uh, who had claims on patronage resources in the economy, but to explain to people what was going to happen in the foreseeable future. In particular, African leaders face a choice now, what to do with these slightly higher growth rates, and in particular, the resources that are spun out. Will they be consumed? And they will be an excellent argument for that, given the absolute poverty of so many African countries. Or will some of those monies be saved and invested? Uh, and each African government has to make a rhetorical commitment and a substantive commitment uh, to the idea of long-term economic prosperity. That's not there yet, although leaders say, of course, that they want to grow, but they have not explained to their populations what growth will be, how it will come about, and what they can likely expect from the market and the state in the foreseeable future. That kind of laser-like focus is missing when you get down to the details in a surprising number of African countries, even if their macro economies have begun to expand. Uh, There's much more to talk about, but why don't I conclude here by saying this is a very positive moment, I think, for African countries, but they face a choice because they are no longer at the nadir of economic development. And in this relatively buoyant moment, can they accelerate reform so that the old systems of patronage and the like can be further dismantled? Or will, given that the pressure is slightly off, given that there are new entrants in the international market from China and elsewhere that are bidding for commodities, uh, will they revert at least somewhat to old practices? Uh, the consequences, since ideas do have consequences, are immense for literally tens of millions of people whose life prospects may go one way or the other. Uh, in the end, these will be African decisions, of course, uh, and we believe that outsiders will have only a limited impact. Uh, but the Africans do have the choice now and the ability to move into an even more significant growth mode which we believe would lead to job creation and relative prosperity, uh, but those consequences are not inevitable. And what we may see, in fact, is a tremendous diversity across the continent, as some governments and leaders make those choices and others do not. That would be a continuation of one of the great macro trends in Africa since independence in the 1960s, where the continent has become ever more diverse. Uh, thank you for coming out uh, today. i uh, be delighted to discuss the book further with you. Again, apologies from Greg Mills, who would very much have wanted to be here, uh, but we look forward to engaging in these debates with you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Um, our next speaker is Todd Moss. Uh, Todd is... Um, Uh, a colleague and a friend and uh, an inspiration to many of us who are working on Africa. He's been a friend of the Cato Institute for many years. Uh, He's currently the Vice President for Programs and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. Uh, He directs the Emerging Africa Project and his work focuses on US-Africa relations and financial issues facing Sub-Saharan Africa including policies that affect uh, private investment debt and aid. He's currently working on cash transfers in new oil economies, new ideas for restructuring US development um, policy, and the future of IDA. Uh, In the past, he led the center's work on Nigerian debt, Zimbabwe's uh, economic recovery. We are still waiting for that one and uh, African Development Bank. Uh, Moss served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of African Affairs at the US Department of State. Before that, he was uh, with the World Bank, uh, where he served as a consultant and advisor to the chief economist in the Africa region. Prior to working for the bank, he was a lecturer at the London London School of Economics uh, in the Postgraduate Development Studies Institute. And before that, he worked for the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, with that, uh, please uh, help me welcome Todd Moss.
2: OK, if I stay here?
0: If you I OK. That's fine.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Marian. Uh, congratulations, uh, Jeff and Greg. Uh, I'm really uh, honored to be, uh, to be asked to comment uh, on this book. Of course, I read a lot of Just Work uh, in school, uh, especially the, the seminal work on the politics of adjustment in Africa. Um, uh, let me start with my, my big criticism of the book. I don't know if you call it watermelon or what it is, but I don't know what to call the color <laughs> of this book cover. Uh, I've never seen that color before. Um, I'm going to say uh, three small positives and then uh, three big positives about the book. Uh, the small, the small positives. Something that struck me. I, I knew it, but I didn't. I guess I didn't realize it till I read it in this book. Is that the Southern African region is really lagging in many ways the rest of the continent. We always think of South Africa as a leader. You know, relatively wealthy. We've got Botswana and Namibia. Countries seem to be doing well, and we think of Central, East, and West Africa as kind of messy, but they point out that, that with the exception of Chad and Eritrea, actually all the one-party states left are in Southern Africa. Uh, I, I, that, that, that really struck me. Uh, the second small positive is that they make the point, I think, quite, quite, quite clearly, that education is not only important, but that it's not about quality. It's ac- it's not about quantity. It's actually about quality. Uh, the Millennium Development Goals about enrollment uh, has led to a lot of butts in seats, but we're not actually seeing much learning. Um, and uh, I was uh, I was reminded also. Just outside, one of, the, one of Cato's books, uh, The Beautiful Tree, by James Tooley, talks about the rise of, of private education. That's certainly going to be one, uh, one response to, uh, to the failure of learning in schools. Um, we also, I spent most of yesterday with Lant Pritchett, who's working on this issue, and we'll, the center will be putting out uh, his book, which looks at the problem of, of quality education, particularly focused on, on India, because that's where a lot of the evidence base is, but East Africa... Uh, as well. Um, And I think that that's going to be, the shift is going to be on education quality now, and hopefully when there's another round of Millennium Development Goals post-2015, there will be something that has to do with actual learning rather than just getting kids packed into a a building that we call a school. Um, The third is that uh, it's not often that you read a book about Uh, Politics and Economics, where they credit one of the the inspirations uh, as a pop singer. But I noticed footnote 14 in the final chapter credits Johnny Clegg uh, as inspiring uh, um, a key part of the book. I also kind of like that. Um, So what are are the three big big positives? Uh, One is that jobs and growth is clearly the primary challenge facing uh, sub-Saharan Africa right now. And also that the instinct to pick winners uh, is actually extremely dangerous and can, Jeff hinted at this, it can get us back to uh, some of the worst um, examples of state direction, state control of things leading to uh, mass patronage and not leading uh, to jobs. Uh, It seems that often when we're talking about the private sector in some countries, this is not uh, universal, but in many countries, when we're talking about the private sector, we're often talking about the president's family and their private holdings. Uh, and we, I think we need to be very clear that when we talk about, we in, in the West talk about the private sector, you're talking about an independent business sector that is gaining wealth through something other than political connections. Now, of course, we have problems with this in our own country. Um, but I think it's very clear when you notice that the wealthiest people in the country are becoming wealthy because of either their, their family relationships or their access to uh, government subsidies or import controls. If their wealth is based on government, um, on some kind of government intervention, that that's not really uh, a competitive private sector that we're talking about that's going to prepare Africa to be competitive in a 21st century economy. Uh, The the book talks a lot about this sort of animus to business. I think that that's probably less ideological today uh, than it is about using state levers to hammer potential political opponents. It's much more, I think, uh, that that many political elites view uh, independent business people as potential rivals and they want to hammer them rather than as some sort of uh, nostalgia for, uh, for, for uh, uh, romantic socialism of, uh, of the past. Doesn't mean that they might, might not revert to some of that rhetoric, but I think it's much more uh, uh, short term. I also think that the, 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 the growth trends that, that Jeff highlighted and that we've heard a lot about from the big international financial institutions, which all point to growth being up, uh, I think that's, that's absolutely true I think underneath these positive regional aggregates there is a ton of divergence, and in fact I think the dominant trend is that we're seeing some countries actually investing and preparing to make their economies competitive for the future, a lot of countries not doing that at all, Uh, a big bunch in the middle that could go either way, and that I think the dominant economic trend at a macro level we're gonna see is rapid divergence uh, between sort of countries that get it and countries uh, that don't. Um, you know, I think we also let, would like to think that governance is really driving a lot of these positive numbers, and we hope that it's not too much driven by international commodity prices. I did have a look at the World Bank's imperfect but not too bad governance indicators. They have a time series. And if you look at countries in, in the mid 1990s and today, we actually have 23 African countries that have improved and 23 countries. African countries uh, that have deteriorated on the the governance indicators. So again, an example of of this divergence. I think we also, um, this divergence is especially important because African markets are so fragmented. Uh, We will often hear, you might hear in the press that Africa's workforce is about to become bigger than India's workforce. Yes, but that's because you've got these labor markets divided over 48 or 49 countries. Um, We like to think that these countries are taking off, but in relative terms, they're still still very, very tiny. Um, uh, I live in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, just over the border, and uh, the budget, uh, the school's budget for Montgomery County, Maryland is roughly the same as Senegal's uh, federal budget. So the scale that we're talking about uh, is still, I think, quite stark. Um, So jobs and growth, yes. The the other thing that I think that Jeff and Greg get right is that they posit three big questions. I'm not sure they call them three big questions, but they they talk about the politics of growth. What's going to be the politics of growth? What's going to be the constituency for growth? And then third, what's going to be the ideology of growth? You know, as I hinted, I think the ideology a little bit less important, but absolutely the constituency for growth uh, critical. Who who are going to be the advocates inside Kenya, inside Uganda, inside Ghana for uh, changing government policy, getting government out of certain things that it's doing wrong, making investments in things like education uh, and infrastructure? The third big uh, thing that I think they get right is that the that foreign aid is just no longer central to the African policy discussion. It is no longer sort of DAC world, which I think peaked and ended uh, in, uh, at Glen Eagles in, in, in 2005. And this is partly a confluence of big trends like uh, a massive increase in the availability of private finance for, for African countries, uh, massive increase in potential non-DAC donors that are getting interested, Uh, in Africa, and of course, fiscal crisis in most of the DAC uh, capitals. Uh, And what this does, as as Jeff pointed out, is it creates a whole range of new choices for African leaders, Uh, and there's going to be, I think, a lot of bad choices made, but I think a lot will make good choices, and they can use these choices uh, uh, against each other, which frankly I think is positive to break this sort of DAC cartel uh, of donors. That said, the the aid aid world is not over, okay? Global aid is still about $160 billion last year. That is still very big. We are in Washington, D.C., a lot of aid agencies in this town, um, uh, and uh, a a lot of political support for those agencies, and as we've heard, even in, 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 in the presidential debates, both parties Uh, in the United States at least, still view foreign assistance as an important foreign policy lever and they will continue uh, to use that. So let me conclude with what I think is the central challenge, which is entirely consistent with with, uh, Jeff Jeff and and Greg's thesis, is uh, the central central challenge is turning Africa's natural resource wealth into jobs and broad-based growth that have to do with non-extractive sectors. If we think just in the last 24 months, virtually every country on the continent with a coastline has had a significant oil or natural gas find. Uh, And a lot of the uh, landlocked ones have too. Now the problem here is that the record, not just in Africa, but globally, on natural resource management is pretty bad. Um, if If you think that the way that oil income, offshore oil ca- income, is translated into uh, jobs and other productive activities, that's all intermediated by the state, right? The money comes into the government. Uh, the government has to decide how to wisely spend this uh, to generate other kinds of activities. And of course, political elites have lots of other things they'd like to spend money on. Uh, and in many cases, they have lots of other objectives. So that's been a problem. The record on promoting diversification has also been awful, including in the best-run countries in Africa. If we look at Botswana's experience with trying to promote uh, car industry, trying to promote all kinds of other uh, sectors in Botswana, now small country, landlocked, particular reasons why that's difficult, the the record of government intervention to promote diversification, again, very, very, uh, very, very, uh, I would think, worrying. And I think lastly, it's that our advice for countries uh, is totally inadequate. So if you work at the IMF and you get a phone call from a finance minister and they've just hit the oil lottery and they're they're gonna get hit with, uh, you know, maybe the equivalent of 50% of their budget in three years uh, of new oil revenue. They haven't done anything. They haven't promoted broad-based growth. This is just essentially falls out of the sky. What's the advice we give them to do? The advice is, set up a sovereign wealth fund, publish your budget. Those are are pretty good ideas, but it's totally inadequate to uh, the policy challenge of getting hit in the face with that that wall of money. Which comes back to my my, my last point, which is on this constituency for growth. Uh, And the key here is if we look at countries that have done well with managing natural resources, it's been that they've had a powerful constituency that advocated for something else. They weren't just trying to get their hands on the the extractive uh, money. They weren't just trying to capture that. They were actually trying to prevent that from ruining everything else, like driving out farming or manufacturing. Um, Now, our answer is that, well, countries need strong institutions. Unfortunately, our record to build institutions, terrible. Uh, We don't really know what they are, much less how to build them. Uh, but we do have a place. I want to not be totally pessimistic. We think of the social contract as critical to strong institutions, where country, where populations pay taxes and governments provide services, and there's an implicit bargain there. Uh, we do have a place to start, and that is building a tax revenue base. Um, and that's something that I think uh, we've spent a lot of attention on budget expenditure on the spending side. We've done a lot more, a lot less on the tax building. Uh, side, um, but I think that that gives us a, a starting point uh, for thinking about how we can try to encourage uh, a lot better governance and a lot, uh, a lot better outcomes uh, in Africa. Thank you. Thank you
0: very much. Thank you very much. Uh, before I turn to Q and A, um, let me actually address the first question to to both of you. You, you seem to agree that uh, education plays a very important role. And uh, I'm sure that doesn't mean that government alone is responsible for uh, providing better education. I mean, there is a scope for uh, a lot of private sector involvement, just like uh, James Tooley describes it in The Beautiful Tree. But uh, Jeff, at the same time, the book says, well, where is the uh, African uh, comparative advantage in, in the short term? It's probably going to be in agriculture and textiles. Do you really need um, a lot of investment um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in education in order to, um, in order to promote uh, those two areas of uh, potential economic growth? Uh, would it not be more... Uh, would not be more realistic to assume that as countries grow richer precisely through uh, uh, agricultural um, through agriculture and and textiles and as the workforce is educated by the actual companies um, uh, where they work that education will be really a, uh, a better education will be a product of economic grow- growth rather than prerequisite
1: no i think well, the sequencing is uh, hard. Uh, I think the current outcomes in educations are simply inadequate. Um, they're inadequate across the board, given uh, how much money has been invested, invested as, as was noted, uh, as very poor outcomes, but also, in some cases, I think inadequate investment. I think African countries do have to raise uh, the educational levels now and in the immediate future, uh, both because that's what current economies demand because it has very important implications elsewhere in terms of uh, empowering especially girls, young, uh, young women uh, in terms of making choices about marriage uh, and childbearing. But also what we saw is uh, that it's, it's an unpredictable world. and. One of the things that companies look at when they're citing call centers to take one industry, which didn't exist uh, not that long ago, but which is now very significant in Asia, uh, is an educated workforce uh, that can uh, operate in that context. Uh, So I think uh, African countries show a deficit in education right now. I think uh, they have to uh, get ahead of that now, and it is one of the immediate areas of Infrastructure of social improvement uh, that I think uh, is worthy of quality investment, because as was said, uh, the sheer numbers do mask uh, what are really troubling signs in terms of what people are actually learning. I, I mean,
2: I think that the 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 idea of whether it needs to be government provided education services or not is is you know, yes, we're going to see the rise of, of private uh, education. We're already seeing that, and that should be something that should not be viewed as a threat to the state. I think the bigger problem with the current approach in many countries, this is not, uh, again, not universal, is that there's a very uh, uh, centralized, you know, the minister, Ministry of Education in the capital decides, decides the budget. All the money flows through the capital. Uh, there's no local control over teachers, over hiring, over budgets. Over any of the decisions that really matter for local schools, um, uh, and I think it's kind of breaking a, a bit of that cartel um, that's uh, uh, locked between either, you know, often between the ministry, uh, civil servants, and the teachers' union uh, that doesn't want to devolve uh, power or uh, authority to, uh, to to locals. Okay, thank you very much. So we'll open to Q and A, uh, please. Um
0: uh, would you wait for the microphone to make it to you, and then uh, tell us who your paymaster is, and uh, form your question in uh, in a form of a question, lady over there?
1: Hello, um, I'm teaching now at American University. I won't, they don't actually pay me that much, so but before that, the University of Cape Town. So hence, the question is going to be a little bit focused on South Africa. I'd like you to please speak a little bit more about unions because I think that uh, you mentioned the ideology was not an issue, but coming from South Africa, w- unions and the government are using ideology more than I have seen in quite a while. And what role do you think unions will play in cramping the growth process? Thank you.
2: you want to take a bunch sure.
0: No, you guys go
2: ahead and um, answer uh, Look, I think South Africa is at a particular moment right now where there is a a clash of ideology in South Africa. There's no question about that. I work mostly on West Africa now, and I just don't see that at all. Um, In fact, I can't really think of a country in West Africa where there i mean the deep ideological divide would be over religion not over over uh, you know labor market issues uh, so um, you know uh, obviously south africa going through through this period now um, there is a ten- there there is a tension this is true in all, in all in in all african countries between job uh, quantity and quality and clearly Union members, unions like any um, uh, organized interest group will advocate for their members and they want uh, fewer competitors and they want higher wages for their members and almost by definition that's going to translate into fewer jobs. Um, There's no question that the data points to labor rigidity in South Africa as a major constraint on jobs growth. I don't think that's controversial. Uh, that's also true in a lot of other places where the barriers to entry to the labor market are very high. Um, if you're a miner in a lot of countries, you might have to pay two to three years' wages in a bribe to get that first job. Now that's a tremendous barrier, and, that, and that now you're indebted, so you have now a very strong incentive to try to keep out anybody else that wants to create that job. So the sort of labor-intensive uh, market uh, uh, industries that East Asia used, I think, are going to face this, this problem. Um, uh, and there's also lots of other reasons why I, you know I'm very skeptical that textiles are the future uh, in sub-Saharan Africa.
1: I'll just take a little bit on South Africa. Because of the very particular way that the struggle against apartheid uh, played out, where unions were uh, really the only legal, in many ways, uh, means of uh, formal opposition and had a hugely important role in the struggle. Uh, they came out of uh, that in 94 as a key strategic partner of the ruling party. Uh, it was said then uh, that uh, high wages uh, enforced by government at the with pressure from the unions would deter job growth in South Africa. That's exactly what's happened for almost 20 years. And I think what we're seeing now is some questions about whether that model is going to break down, uh, simply because job growth has been so disappointing, uh, and the bet that the ANC made, which was it could redistribute income uh, from uh, uh, from those in the wage sector to a very large number of formally unemployed, uh, is showing real signs. And I think there is a real question uh, in South Africa if that model, both economically, it's not worked, but now whether it's going to work politically anymore. Uh, I think that's an open question. Uh, South Africans are beginning to realize that their relative growth performance vis-a-vis other African countries, which they held, uh, you know, as being uh, not as competitive, is poor. Their relative performance, and uh, that uh, that recognition is beginning to seep through the policy debates. Uh, but it's going to change. Uh, it's going to require a real change in the political marketplace uh before the economic policies can come around uh to those that favor much greater job creation
0: wow a lot of questions um let's go to tony carroll and then we'll come to you
3: thanks uh marion for inviting us to this beautiful auditorium uh it's a really a special place I'm glad I named my son Frederick A after F. A Hayek <laughs> I uh, might give you an indication of my uh, message or my question. I, I'm Tony Carroll. I'm a vice president to Manchester Trade, so this guy makes, I make this guy my paymaster. And I also lecture at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. And while I've only just bought the book, I look forward to reading it, Jeff. Uh, the question I have is uh, to what extent resource mobility has something to do with Africa's growth and ability to meet the jobs dilemma? And I would define those resource mobility in terms of labor. Uh, goods and services, and uh, capital. And just as a fine point on the issue of cars in South Africa, having been an investor and gotten beat beat up pretty badly in the car manufacturing business in Botswana, let me say that it wasn't Botswana's uh, undertaking that or uh, inability to to attract investment on that deal. It was the inability of the so- of our ability to get our goods into the South African market. Uh, That was – and their willingness to protect their industry and not want competitors in Botswana that allowed – that basically excluded us from being able to sell into that market. That was the protectionist reason why the Botswana car industry tanked. It wasn't because of mismanagement by the Botswana.
1: Tony, just say another word or so about what you mean by resource mobility and specifically.
3: Trade of goods, services, cross-border, capital flows, uh, ability of being able to invest across borders. One of the – the reasons I think that East Africa has grown so rapidly relative to other markets is because there's a, a lot more investment coming in from Kenya into the Greater Lakes region. So the ability of markets now being able to become more cross border, whether that's driven by regional integration or whether that's driven by just a recognition that Africa in its individual nation size is too small to really foster economic growth at any sort of rate.
1: Right. Um, I think the regional integration question. I mean, since I've been an undergraduate, uh, has uh, has been there. I remained very skeptical. Uh, not skeptical that African countries shouldn't be trading with each other, uh, especially when they join each other. Uh, that's obviously useful. Uh, and the regional integration efforts that are talked about at innumerable conferences, where people are paid vast per diems. Uh, Uh, to talk about these things and proclaim how they're finally breaking down borders. Uh, You need to go to the land borders uh, that are separating a lot of countries to see that the reality is that trucks are still stuck in queues that are miles long uh, in countries that have supposedly uh, cleaned up all their trade barriers. That, obviously, is a drag uh, and a more efficient way of clearing Uh, trucks uh, and traffic and cargo across borders would be useful and I think in some cases in East Africa probably does lead the way, uh, greater capital mobility would be important. However, these countries even aggregated at the regional level still are extremely small markets uh, and amounting to 1 or 2% of world domestic product across the subcontinent. Uh, They are going to be able to grow or not grow depending on how well they integrate into the world market. And therefore I think regional integration is useful but I think remains very much a second or third tier drama. Something that should happen, something that uh, is natural uh, but will not I think in most cases come close to determining the development trajectory of countries. And I do worry, and I have worried for a long time, that regional integration will in fact distract leaders uh, from the more pressing problem of how to integrate into the global economy. Uh, Finally, while some of these regions are, on the map regions, uh, given the vastness of the territory and poor infrastructure, which makes them effectively much further apart uh, than they appear cartographically, uh, they are regions in some cases in name only. So I think it should happen, but this has been the dream or the distraction of a large number of Africans for a large period of time, that regional integration is somehow the way forward uh, when, in fact, I think they must recognize that, in fact, it's global integration.
2: I mean, I, 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 would, I would agree with everything you just said. The, the, I think the focus on regional integration too often becomes about regional institutions Okay. Instead of creating a common market in East Africa, we have to talk about, oh, let's have a regional parliament and maybe a regional currency. And, re- and that becomes uh, just another layer of difficulty in actually trying to transact across borders. Um, it's a little bit of the, 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 the trade problem in that you can legally s- wipe things uh, clean, uh, but then you're stuck with all of these sort of de facto barriers that, uh, that are much, much harder to get rid of. So.
4: Thank you very much. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I'm the Special Operations Division for United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. Thank you very much for your work. I enjoy the way you, frame, you guys frame it, first and second, and third revolution, liberation. As I'm in here, I don't think there's anybody in here who is my peer or colleague. I was involved in both the First and Second Liberation. <laughs> and the third, and my comrade is on the front page of Financial Times, Fidel Castro. Now, listen. The third liberation that you're talking about is not the way you think it's going to happen. 2017, five years from now, there's gonna be a United State of Africa, a federation. Not the European Union. We told people that the European Union will fail because they were putting the cart before the Earth. Now, Merkel is saying there should be a United States of Europe, a federation like America. Well, they are helping us now to make United States of Africa happen in 2017. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Barry Wood, uh, MoneyWeb in South Africa.
5: Um, My question has to do with Chinese investment. There's so much Chinese investment coming into Africa. How can... Southern African countries, the ones I know, mobilize that investment for economic growth and not have China be simply another new imperial force?
1: Well, I think you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether China is good or bad uh, for African countries. I think it's exactly as you posed it. Uh, it says, it's, the point is how Africans manage this. What we're seeing is the normalization of Africa's relations with the world. Uh, Because of colonialism uh, and then the aftermath, uh, countries were too long orientated uh, in terms of economics, socially and otherwise, uh, to Western European countries and to the United States. And now Africa is engaging with the world and at the same time there are tectonic shifts Uh, in the global economy that are giving some people a lot more purchasing power. Uh, So this is all, I think, normal. Uh, Whether it's good or bad uh, depends precisely on how the Africans manage it. Um, If they see Chinese investment as just a way and you could argue uh, this has occurred in some of the oil producers, as a way of avoiding claims on good governance, uh, and especially pres- uh, which they associate with pressure uh, from the United States and Western Europe, uh, then th- that money is going to be wasted. Uh, if, however, uh, that investment, especially Uh, The Chinese focus on infrastructure, which has been a shortcoming of many Western approaches and many Western development approaches in particular, not at the multilateral level, but at the bilateral level. If they use those investments in infrastructure, uh, I think uh, then it is going to be a real positive uh, because infrastructure in Africa declined mightily during the years of decline and is beginning to be a real constraint on nascent economic growth. Uh, We talk a little bit in the book about electricity production in particular, uh, which people didn't pay much attention to when African countries were in the decline because consumption wasn't moving. Uh, But now uh, that consumption is moving up and production has remained stable in some countries is actually at or below the uh, immediate post-colonial period, uh, it's a problem. So I think if the Chinese investment is managed in a way that addresses African priorities if it's managed in a way that does not promote rent-seeking and corruption, uh, then these uh, investments will be to the positive. And I would not treat them differently uh, in many ways than the investments coming uh, from the United States and Western Europe, which are also increasing, albeit in certain sectors, especially hydrocarbons. Uh, But I think we could see remarkably different results and effects of China on Africa, depending on how individual countries manage it.
2: Look, I, I don't think there's a country in Africa, including South Africa, that doesn't have a, an electricity problem. Um, if they don't have it now, they're on the cusp of, of being simply short of, uh, of generating enough power. And they, don't ha- they have huge swaths of population that have just no access to electricity at all. Um, and clearly the Chinese are good at building stuff. Uh, they come with uh, low interest credit uh, they come with uh, construction companies that are able to work in difficult environments and build stuff at low cost. Uh, nobody else is really going to do that. German engineering uh, American engineering firms are not going to build a lot of this. There are some cases like uh, in Togo at the American power plant. Um, but frankly, the constraints that we've put on our own private sector agencies in the U.S. government... Uh, make that very, very difficult. And those are going to remain. Um, those are going to remain exceptions uh, uh, unless we, uh, unless we change uh, our, own, our, our own our own tools. Um, uh, one thing I, just on China is that there. Are, I'm still surprised at how many people view uh, U.S. and Chinese activities in Africa in competition somehow. Uh, I mean, the, the, the idea that we're in a Cold War competition with China and Africa just makes no sense. Uh, there are cases where Chinese engagement rubs us the wrong way or conflicts with our objectives. You could imagine, uh, uh, you know, Chinese uh, activities in Sudan are sometimes problematic. Certainly their, their engagement with, uh, with uh, ZANU-PF in, in Harare is a problem. And there are particular cases where maybe a, a commercial contract was done in a way that wasn't exactly above board and an American company, lost out to a Chinese firm. Those are, those are, the, those are the sources of friction. But in large, our, our interests in Africa are aligned, uh, where everybody stands to gain from a more peaceful and prosperous continent. Uh, and really, our tools are operating in totally different uh, spheres. Uh, the Chinese generally build stuff, and we—they tend to do the hardware, and we tend to do a lot of the software. Now, I know that the State Department's pissed off when the Chinese build a school, and we train all the teachers, and they get the big sign, and nobody knows that the Americans did that. But that's a separate problem. Uh, for for Africa's future, that's uh, that's uh, I think all all positive. Um, let's go
0: over there. This Peter.
5: Thank you. Uh, Peter Lewis from SICE. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Jeff and Todd. Uh, very good presentation. And uh, I'm uh, very much in, in, uh, in sympathy with the, uh, the conclusions of the book, particularly uh, the emphasis on uh, private sector investment for uh, broad-based development. But we've heard so far a lot about automobiles, about textiles, about unionized jobs. Um, But we know from say the World Bank that in a country like Nigeria two percent of the labor force is in uh, private sector salaried positions Uh, Meaning that the vast majority of the labor force is in self-employment the informal sector agriculture and so forth and we also know from East Asia that China's uh, surge toward wealth began with liberalization of the farms where smallholder producers began to get rich, uh, feeding local consumer industries, and then also creating small independent proprietorships. So the question then is, uh, what types of opportunities are there beyond formal sector employment, which, even if it grows rapidly in some countries, is unlikely to be sufficient to generate livelihoods or incomes sufficient to uh, raise all boats, if you will?
2: I defer to you to eat
1: your book launch. I think it's a good question. And I think one of the immediate things you have to say is we don't project uh, that Africa will be growing along the uh, Asian growth rate trajectory. And uh, one of the things we became accustomed to somehow is that countries could grow at 7 8% uh, somehow uh, faster for uh, 30 years or more. Uh, that is in all likelihood not the African uh, growth trajectory simply because of different resource endowments and different colonial uh, endowments at independence and the amount of work that now has to be done uh, to make up for the past and the fact that they are now entering the global economy at a different at a very different stage uh, than was the case when Korea or uh, uh, Taiwan and now China entered it. It's a global economy that is a lot more mature, uh, that has a lot more low cost, uh, producers already in it. Uh, So uh, while we uh, celebrate in many ways a five, five and a half percent growth, I don't think you're going to see African countries by by and large growing at eight, nine percent a year. Uh, So it's gonna be a slower process, a process which is still quite abnormal by human history where people grew including the United States in its defining economic period at a much slower rate, Uh, but we're not going to see the immediate, the fast transformational changes uh, that Asia saw. So things are going to happen at a slower rate. Uh, Therefore, the African structural economy as it is, uh, with a significant number of people, albeit declining as a relative share in agriculture, for instance, uh, will be a reality for the foreseeable future, although... Uh, it should be noted uh, that uh, urbanization uh, remains one of the great trends in Africa, as indeed it does across the world. I think, therefore, that uh, more productive agriculture, uh, where demand, uh, where uh, farmers are able to respond to greater demand, both domestically and internationally, will be, for the foreseeable future, one of the most important means of poverty alleviation, as well as job growth and quasi-job growth, because. In many cases, as you know, it's not a question of someone having a formal job and then leaving uh, the informal sector, but people transit in between. Uh, They will transit more into the formal sector over time. Uh, And finally, I think uh, we may be surprised at some of the immediate job creation opportunities that are possible once investment, not only foreign investment, domestic investment, picks up. So I don't think we're going to see one sector uh, leading the way, and I believe, for instance, that while there is a role for textiles, it will not be the role that was the case in East Asia, uh, but that African economies can move forward in a variety of ways in agriculture, semi-quasi-private employment, as well as other areas, but this will be a slower and more difficult process than was the case in East Asia.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's all right. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to figure out, even if we Sat down with you know uh, with, with a particular leadership and really smart people with lots of data, which almost never happens. But even if we did that, that we'd be able to pick out, okay, country X, you need to go into Y sector. That's your. I, I don't think it's going to work that way. I think it's going to be very incremental. Uh, that that countries. That, that succeed will be those that identify those, those sort of top-tier barriers to entrepreneurship, to business growth, and then they put teams together that, that deal with those in a practical nature. Not to sound like this is a sort of McKinsey approach to development, but you, the, the idea of grand, a better grand planning with smarter advisors, I think, is complete folly. Um, and we've seen in places like Nigeria, in Ethiopia, and certainly in places like Rwanda, where even pretty modest uh, reforms can actually give you a pretty good bump on the other end, uh, and if you start to see a, a reform, pro-private-sector, pro-business-minded agenda implemented not just for you know the latter half of one term of one president, but over you know over say a decade or two. Um, then you'll start to see, I think you'll start to see the, the, the private sector response pick up and you'll see a lot of people that are in the informal sector transition in, in, into the formal sector, um, which is where a lot of the jobs, I think, will come from. Let's take two
0: last questions, uh, Rick, uh, at the same time, Rick Sincere here and then over there in the back. Uh,
5: Rick Sincere, Scribe Strategies and Advisors. Two examples don't make a trend, but uh, recently uh, two Francophone countries, about 10 years ago Rwanda and within recent weeks uh, Gabon, have made English uh, an official language, and I'm wondering what you think will be the benefits of that commercially or economically, and if that might be a benefit to other Francophone countries as well.
0: Okay, one more. Oh, okay, you go ahead, yeah. right, and then we'll take the third one over there, okay. Yeah, Brock Williams with the Congressional
2: Research Service. Uh, in addition to foreign aid, one of the tool, policy tools that the U.S. has at its disposal are trade preference prog- programs like the African Growth and Opportunity Act, and I was wondering how important you think that particular piece of legislation has been in answering this question and how important it will be in the future, and if not, what are the policy levers that the U.S. should be using to, to address the question of the book?
0: Okay, so we'll do English and AGOA and then we'll come to you for the last question. Please, go ahead.
1: Sure, the English is a great question and it is an enormous commercial advantage to have a workforce that speaks English in the global economy. Uh, That's something uh, uh, we saw in the Philippines and elsewhere and talk about it. It came up a surprising amount actually in the book, more than we would have anticipated. that is that is a, a quite significant comparative advantage uh, in a world where services uh, will be important. Whether any other Francophone countries have the capability to do that, uh, much less the willingness, I think is, uh, I would say, doubtful. Uh, but uh, And there are strong countervailing pressures from Paris, of course. Um, but I think it, it is an enormous advantage. Mozambique had that debate Uh, shortly after independence, uh, decided to stick uh, with Portuguese. Um, Well, there were historic and other reasons for that. uh, But in terms of integration, in terms of what are the available ways to integrate you into the world economy, uh, English would have been a, a better choice. But I think it's a potentially quite significant development. I think AGOA is important um, for a variety of reasons, some of them outside of formal trade dynamics. There remains a skepticism in Africa, among elites in particular, in particular countries, that the world will let African countries develop. Uh, And this is in part because there has yet to be a dramatic breakout of an African country of signif- of continental significance and integrated into the world economy, yes, Botswana has done great. its success is dismissed because of diamonds, but more importantly because of its size. Yes, Mauritius has done great. Uh, there's great skepticism of whether it is e- even should be coded as an African country. Uh, there has yet to be an African country of significant heft uh, that has really made it in the international economy, and there remains an underlying sometimes spoken only in quiet sentiment that the world will continue to rig the world economy against African countries emerging, even though there has now been countless examples of countries outside of Western Europe uh, that have become quite integrated and have succeeded quite well in the international economy. Agoa sends a signal, an important signal, that that's not the case. Uh, so I think at a symbolic level, it's very important. I think it also sends a signal to entrepreneurs uh, that uh, the U.S. economy can be penetrated, uh, a vast, confusing, but very uh, uh, very buoyant and uh, quite rich market. Uh, the problem is that uh, it is a preference, and uh, that we would be better off, and as would countries, uh, if this was standard practice, since it raises questions about uh, the permanence of the policies and of the benefits. Some of the countries that have AGOA, uh successes have not been able to transfer those successes into the general economy. Uh, Lesotho has been an example, uh, which I think has been disappointing in many ways because there was dramatic results uh, from AGOA, uh, but that did not uh, manage to gain traction in the economy for lots of reasons. But I think uh, it was in some ways uh, something of an enclave to a specific piece of legislation uh, rather than a more formal integration into the world economy.
2: Uh, So on the Francophone question, I mean, it's not just the language issue, but also the closed French business system where many countries, uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of American companies won't won't want to enter those markets, not just because they, they might not have enough staff that speak French, but because they perceive it that uh, French business uh, in collusion with the government will keep, uh, will keep non-French businesses out. So it's more, I think it's more of a, uh, of a, of a market liberalization question uh, uh, that complements the, the, the language. Well, on a Goa, I think a Goa was great for what it was. Uh, but we should be honest about what it is, which is we just remove trade taxes on our, on most African goods. We, we should do that. Um, uh, it has led to a little bit of a bump in, uh, in, in uh, African exports into the United States. Um, it has not led to a textile boom. I don't think that, uh, uh, and it hasn't led to a general export boom uh, outside of certain uh, extractive sectors, but that's really because Market barriers were not the primary constraint. This is, you know, if we look now at what's holding back African exporters, um, a lot of them have to do with behind the border uh, constraints, like you know, high cost and unreliable power, uh, ports that make things costly, uh, low skills uh, among among the, in the labor force, and if you take away those trade taxes, they still have to compete with Bangladesh, Vietnam, other countries uh, and, uh, and frankly, they're not, they're not quite there yet. And particularly on the scale issue, if you want to um, start a small, or, or say even you're a, a large firm in, by African standards and you want to be a supplier into the US into Walmart, they're not gonna ask for 1,000 widgets, they're gonna ask for 2 million and they're gonna need a guaranteed delivery s- schedule. The scale is just, uh, is, is again, be itself uh, an issue. Um, I had the, I uh, wouldn't call it a pleasure, but uh, the opportunity to lead the AGOA forum uh, in 2008, uh, and that has become, frankly, I think, a pointless circus. Although AGOA has become about this big annual meeting where everybody talks about the importance of trade and the third-party fabric provision, which again, I think is is a very, very marginal issue. Um, AGOA should obviously be made, either made permanent or be embedded in a wider. uh, Rosa Whitaker's not here, so she won't throw things at me. Uh, with, within a wider uh, preference for all low income countries. It's crazy that we would charge trade taxes on, uh, on any country uh, that was so much uh, more low income uh, than our own. Uh, we believe in free trade as, as a country and private sector. Why would we impose trade taxes on a country like, uh, like Bangladesh? It doesn't make
6: any sense.
0: Okay, an absolute last question over there. Quick one.
6: Steve Landy. Uh, Manchester trade first, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Hurst because I'm a Colgate graduate and in 1963 I studied under John Markham, State <laughs> department in <laughs> the pure genius when he asked to go Abidjan and sent me to Thessaloniki Greece But Tony Carroll got me back involved in Africa 30 years into my career during that time unfortunately I strayed into trade policy. So let me make two very short comments that hopefully we could have a real dialogue with Cato we believe at Manchester Trade that that Mr. Morse is absolutely right. We have to incorporate a GOA into a much wider program, not with other LDCs, forget that, but with all the other requirements of development which the U.S. has, mainly to launch something led by the private sector. And we do that by attacking the very very inefficiencies that Dr. Morse described whether it be a failure to be able to help power companies because we have rules against fossil fuel, or whether it's a desire to take Madagascar, the only successful country, we'll say textiles, we'll say other than the ones in southern Africa, off of Agoa because a bunch of thugs seize power. There's a lot of things we can do. So that's one proposal. Obviously, I'm not going to discuss it in that. And number two, based on our own work in trade, we do believe that regional economic community is the only way that you can grow Africa. It's not that you have a choice. You're not going to get the. You're not going to insert Africa into that supply chain unless you're able to put them into at least acceptable sizes. And what we basically argue for is a very simple proposition, and that is that let a go be extended until twenty twenty. Let's keep those preferences in place. Let's stop the Europeans from forcing prematurely bilateral agreements, for FTAs, on African countries which divide them, which make impossible. And by 2020, let's then have the kind of policy that makes some sense. And in the interim, let's get U.S. investment because that's the only engine that we have in the states that can promote this growth. Can't talk more because okay, I Okay, thank you very much. Is lunch, but Any I do comments? appreciate the opportunity and look forward to further discussion. Thank you.
1: Well, I... I I agree with that. I will say I think that in some ways a go is more of a Washington discussion than an African discussion. Um, uh, and uh, and that's because of the realities of uh, of uh, penetrating to the world of market of which the United States is only one, albeit an important part. Uh, I'll remain skeptical on regional approaches, not because I wouldn't want it uh, for the very reasons that you say, Uh, but because I think it is going to be very hard to manage and because uh, the sheer diversity, and I think we both agree, the increasing diversity that we'll see in Africa in the next few years will only make it that much more difficult. Uh, The Africans have devoted an enormous amount of political capital uh, to regional integration to date uh, without the results, I think, that are appropriate. it is hard to integrate into the global economy at scale. But as was said, given that the likely partners, if you were to go hand in hand and try to engage in the international economy, don't give you that much more scale and give you even more managerial and political headaches.
2: Just a l- last point, and uh, this this won't make Marion happy, but we are not, uh, you know, AGOA is fine on its own. We are not deploying the private sector tools that we have within the U.S. government. In, I mean, they are massively underperforming. Uh, OPEC, in particular, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, uh, partly because it doesn't need to get budget. Uh, it, it generates its own profits. Uh, it has a lot more flexibility, and it's a primary tool that can help promote private investment in ports, in power, in a lot of these sectors. Um, but we have hamstrung it in two ways. One, certain kinds of uh, the way that they've implemented uh, certain environmental regulations makes it impossible for countries to take advantage of these natural re- gas uh, discoveries uh, that they've had. There's massive demand for, for power and these countries are not emitting CO2. Uh, but OPEC is not allowed to invest in those projects because of the way we interpret our, um, our environmental regulations. Uh, and then secondly, that OPIC is constrained on, in all kinds of other ways through annual appropriations, limits on what kinds of tools it can do, and that a lot of the pieces that could be under a, 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 a big OPIC are spread in USAID, USTDA, Commerce Department, pieces of XM It's all over the place. So every time you want to have a package that would make sense, say, if you were going to have a private uh, power strategy in Nigeria, you have to call an interagency fire drill. Um, And really, uh, OPEC, I think, uh, could be the basis for a much stronger U.S. private sector-led engagement with Africa that would have no fiscal, in fact, positive uh, fiscal effects on the budget. All right,
0: thank you very much to all of you. Thanks to our authors, uh, to our speakers, and please join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.